0: Good morning, my name is Katie. The Old Testament reading is found in 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 9. So all the Israelite elders got together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Listen, you are old now, and your sons don't follow in your footsteps. So appoint us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. It seemed very bad to Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered Samuel, Comply with the people's request, everything they ask of you, because they haven't rejected you. No, they've rejected me as king over them. They are doing to you only what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this very minute, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So comply with their request, but give them a clear warning, telling them how the king will rule over them and operate. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Kayla. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 1, verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and was and is coming, and from the seven spirits that are before God's throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, who made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Kelsey. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the territory of Judea during the rule of King Herod, magi came from the east to Jerusalem. They asked, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east, and we've come to honor him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled, and everyone in Jerusalem was troubled with him. He gathered all the chief priests and the legal experts and asked them where the Christ was to be born. They said, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet wrote, You, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means are you the least among the rulers of Judah, because from you will come one who governs, who will shepherd my people, Israel. The Gospel of our Lord.
2: Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as your Advent people, as people who find ourselves waiting in expectation to celebrate Christmas, but waiting in expectation for you to come again and set everything right and to rule permanently in this place and over our lives. And as we gather, we ask that you would continue to reveal yourself and speak to us, open our minds to understand, and ignite our hearts with holy love that we might be faithful to you is you are faithful to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy opening weekend to all the Star Wars fans in the room. Uh, We've got a few hand waves. Uh, This is the opening weekend for The Last Jedi, and for Star Wars fans of all likes, both the costume-wearing and the non-costume-wearing kinds, there is this sort of like burning question that we bring into the movie. And uh, no spoilers, okay, I promise. I'm not going to spoil anything. But the burning question that a lot of people have kind of coming into this movie is the question about who are Ray's parents? Uh, We want to know who are Ray's parents. And the reason I think Star Wars fans have this sort of like obsession with these characters and their families is because at its core... Star Wars is a story about family. Yes, there's all of the aspects of the Force and light and dark and good and evil and life and death and all of those kind of universal things that we find in any really good story. But at its core... Star Wars is about the fall and redemption of a father and his family. That's kind of the heartbeats beats of this story. And all really great epics have similar kinds of heartbeats. They have some powerful strands that really capture our hearts and hold all of these stories together. For example, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, it may be said that Lord of the Rings, yes, it's got all of this, you know, like jewelry and mountains and all of these kinds of things, <laughs> but, at its, but at its very core, Lord of the Rings may be about friendship. It may be a story about friends on a journey together. In the same way, one of my absolute favorite epics, Toy Story, Um <laughs> I know, this is the brilliance of Pixar, right? Because Pixar takes these toys and tell us the journey of adulthood. In the first episode, we struggle with the issue of identity. And then we get to the second one and we're talking about significance is what he's trying to figure out, what is his great contribution to the world. And then we get to the third one and we start to struggle with retirement and mortality all through the lens of toys. (laughs) Maybe I'm overreading it a little bit, but (laughs) that's what it feels like to me. Within the context of the church, we oftentimes ask ourselves questions about, well, what is the great thread that holds together the Bible? What is the thread, the powerful strand that kind of ties all of these books together. Well, as Pastor Glenn said, my name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at New Life Downtown, and this is the third Sunday of Advent, the season of uh, preparing and waiting for Christmas. It's the season where some of us find ourselves waiting with joyful expectation and others find ourselves waiting with a painful longing. This is that season where it's okay for us to come into a congregation like this and rejoice, and rejoice with each other, and a season where it's okay for us to come in and mourn, and to name our losses and our longings and our pain as we look for Jesus to come again and set all of those things right. Oftentimes during this season, the church... Uh, spends its gathering sort of re-entering the story of Israel, that we take this time to enter back into the Old Testament and to wait with God's people for Jesus to come the first time as we wait for Him to come again. And so we've been in the middle of this series entitled The Coming God, where we've talked about uh, the coming prophet, the coming priest, and now today, the coming King. The prophet, priest, and king are the kind of the three main leadership offices inside of the Old Testament. These places in which we constantly find these stories uh, talking about the people who are fulfilling these positions and leading the people of Israel. And by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, we find that all three offices just fail miserably. (laughs) That all three of them kind of come to a dramatic end or a dramatic failure in some capacity. And so we've been discussing this idea that Israel then began to wonder, like, do we just give up on these things? Do we just get rid of prophets and priests and kings? Or do we just turn to God and say, God, you're going to have to come and do the job yourself because this isn't working out how it's supposed to. Well, today we're going to explore together what it means to say that Jesus Christ is the King of kings. What it means for us to say that He is the coming King. Now, if we were to talk about the Bible then and say, what is it that holds the whole Bible together? Obviously, the Bible is really different than things like Lord of the Rings and Toy Story and Star Wars. Uh, We're talking about a uh, theological history that's being written. Uh, We're not talking about this sort of imaginative world that's being created by these other authors. In addition, when we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about this ancient library. It's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over the span of at least 1,500 years in three different languages. And so how is it that we can even say that a collection like this is held together, and yet through the work of the Holy Spirit, the church is often debating how do these things all fit? And I would present to you that I think from beginning to end, the Bible is the story about God's kingdom. That the Bible is a story about the kingdom of God. Now, kingdom is kind of one of those words we toss around a lot in church. We throw up in songs and we read in the Bible. But as Western modern Americans, this is not something we never really, you know, have our minds around of what exactly is a kingdom. So we either sort of just use the word and go on. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody knows what we're talking about. Or we sort of overcomplicate it in some way. But I think when we talk about a kingdom, every kingdom has to have four basic elements to be able to be called a kingdom. You have to have these four. Uh, You know, things like moats are optional. Uh, They're not required inside of it. Uh, Castles are optional. But there are four things that absolutely have to be there. First thing is we have to have a king or a queen, right? We have to have a ruler in some capacity. Second thing is there has to be people. A kingdom without anybody to rule or govern is not much of a kingdom at all. The third thing is there has to be a place. There has to be lands. There has to be some place for those people to live with their king. And then finally, there has to be some order, some rule, some way of life, some ethic that sort of holds this community of people in this place together in a way that brings about peace. That's fundamentally what a kingdom is. And the same thing could be said for the kingdom of God. And when we say the Bible is about the kingdom of God, we can say that the kingdom of God is this, the kingdom is about God's people living in God's place under God's rule and in God's presence. The kingdom, God's kingdom is about God's people living in God's place under God's rule and in God's presence. In the very beginning of the story, this is exactly how it begins, as we find humans living in the Garden of Eden with God in His presence, submitting to His rule and enjoying all of the benefits of creation. And when we get to the end of the story, when we see this new heaven and new earth coming down, we find that God is once again making His home with people, that we see God's people in God's place, under God's rule and in His presence. And then throughout, we can say it's the challenge of all of those things in the midst of sin. And what is it God is doing to bring His people back into His place under His rule and in His presence? And particularly, we can say it's about the relationship between the king and His people. Uh, That tends to be the very core of what it is that we're talking about within the kingdom. Now, as Americans, we have a very sort of tenuous relationship with monarchies, (laughs) right? We have this sort of like almost a split kind of perspective around these things. On the one hand, we associate kings and kingdoms with tyranny, right? Right? with taxation without representation and throwing some tea in a, in a barber. Like we've got to cast off the shackles. There's a sense for us that when we think of kings, we think of totalitarian kind of rule and a lack of freedom. And uh, there's something about us that sort of innately is suspicious of all authority, right? To some degree, that's part of our culture that on a historical level we can understand why but even personally we have this sort of like eh, i'm not sure and some of us understand that just sort of culturally and others have experienced that personally where we've had authority figures in our lives whether it's been parents or teachers uh, or bosses or political figures or church leaders who have had some sort of authority and they've mishandled that or disappointed us in some way, that we then live with this kind of suspicion around these things. So that's one view that we have of monarchies. The other side of it is, is we have this really strange romantic obsession with them. Right? If you think about most of our fairy tales or most of the movies that are playing on Hallmark right now, they all have something to do with princes and princesses and kings and queens and them falling in love and everything being all happy in some capacity. And I think maybe the, the pinnacle sort of moment of this is in 2011 when 23 million Americans arose at the crack of dawn to watch a wedding in England. Right, the royal wedding sort of like saturated our imaginations for an extended period of time. It was 6 a.m. on the East Coast, so I have no clue what time you were getting up in Colorado. <laughs> it's like 4 a.m. to watch this. We have this sort of tension. I think what it basically means is that we want our kings and our queens to be rich and beautiful and powerless. <laughs> We basically want them to be celebrities. <laughs> that's, that's basically our way of kind of approaching these kind of topics. We have the suspicion. So if they could just have the title and the looks and the cash and like do good things for people but have no bearing on our lives, we'd be pretty happy with that kind of approach. The Bible, of course, has a whole lot to say about Israel's kings and about how Israel's kings are supposed to rule. What is it that the the people should expect of their kings? And the first passage that really kind of dives into this in the Old Testament that addresses kings is Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is in the middle of Moses' second speech to the Israelites before they enter into the land of Canaan. And he says this beginning in verse 14. It says, once you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you, you have taken possession of it and settled down in it. You might say let us appoint a king over us, as all our neighboring nations have done. And you can indeed appoint, a king, uh, appoint over you a king that the Lord your God selects. So the very beginning, God's saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you have a king, but I get to choose who that king is. The, the king is going to be my choice. This is not going to be, you know, deciding who gets to rule the country based on popular vote or electoral vote or any of the controversies that come up with any of that. But we're going to have a divinely elected, a divinely appointed, divinely selected leader. And he said, that granted, the king must not acquire too many horses and he must not return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. Because the Lord, because if, you know, this is what kings do, right? Uh, because the Lord told you, you will never go back by that road again. The king must not take numerous wives so that his heart doesn't go astray, nor can the king acquire too much silver and gold. So the Lord says, I'm going to select who the king is going to be. And then he immediately goes into to a few things and says, this is how the king should not rule. The king should not accumulate horses and wives and cash. Because in the ancient world, this is exactly the ways in which ancient rulers sort of garnered power and exercised rule. Horses were symbolic of military power, right? In that day and age, the chariot was the instrument of choice. And so gathering more horses was a way of building up a king's military might and being able to reign and rule through that kind of violent terror that can be in, uh, kind of both uh, pushed out onto people and onto other countries. And so secondly, the idea of wives here, most of the time that we find ancient kings taking multiple wives, they're doing so by taking the daughters of other kings as a way of sort of forging a bond or alliance or treaty with that other nation. This is political savviness. This is political maneuvering in the ancient world, is that you sort of solidify these alliances by bringing the daughter of the other king into your kingdom. The foreign wives strengthened this. So, this is sort of political power at its finest in the ancient world. And then, of course, silver and gold are about economic power, the ways in which money can be used to buy and manipulate and bribe and cause things to happen um, in the midst of different things. So, they represented the primary ways that the kings sort of maintained control or expanded their control in the ancient world. And then truthfully, it's not all that different today, right? That most of governments, particularly corrupt governments, are around the accumulation of military might, accumulation of political power, accumulation of economic power because of what those things mean in relationship to the rest of the world. And the truth is, it's not all that different in our own lives, that we do the very same kinds of things, that we rely on our physical abilities, what it is that we can do by force, that we rely on our social networks, our capital that we gain inside of all of the relationships that we have. And then we look to our financial investments and our savvy and our resources. We look to all of these things to uh, sort of control our present and secure our future. And God's saying to his kings, you can't rule this way. You can't rule like every other king. And then he goes on and he says, Instead, when the king sits on his royal throne, he himself must write a copy of this instruction, this law on a scroll, in the presence of the Levitical priests. And that instruction must remain with him, and he must read it every day of his life. So he learns to revere the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this instruction and these regulations by doing them and by not being overbearing toward his fellow Israelites and by not deviating even a bit from this commandment. If the king does all of that, he will ensure a lasting rule in Israel for himself and his successors. So God's saying, you can have a king, But that king can't rule like other kings. Instead, your king must submit to me and serve his people. The king must submit to the ways of God and use his office to serve people rather than being overbearing upon them. Now, let's fast forward to 1 Samuel, the passage that we just read in our Old Testament reading, where we see this time that Deuteronomy is forecasting starting to come to fruition. Moses is saying, hey, there's going to come a time where this might happen. And now we fast forward to the moment that it does. Israel's in the land, they're settled, but things aren't going well. The elders come to Samuel and they ask for a king. And this troubles Samuel deeply. And so he prays this, he says, uh, he prays, and the Lord answered, said, comply with the people's request, everything they ask of you, because they haven't rejected you. No, they've rejected me as king over them. They are doing to you only what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this very minute, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So comply with their request, but give them a clear warning telling them how their king will rule over them and operate. I Think out of all the passages in the Old Testament, this is the most heartbreaking summary of Israel's story. They have rejected me as king, as they have since the day I brought them out of Egypt. And I think it's not only a heartbreaking story of Israel, it's the heartbreaking story of us. It's a heartbreaking story of humanity that we have all collectively and individually rejected God as our king in favor of some other rule, mainly our own, in our own lives. From Exodus on, Israel has done the same thing over and over and over again. So Israel's request here for a king really represents a rejection of God rejection of God as king. So Samuel then tells the Israelites that their king will rule over them, but this is how the king will rule. And he begins to list this whole series of actions that all begin with the same verb, the king will take. The king will take your sons The king will take your daughters. The king will take your fields. The king will take your vineyards. The king will take your olive groves. The king will take your servants. The king will take your cattle. The king will take your flocks. The king will take and take and take and take and take. And then this statement, then you yourselves will become his slaves. Ouch. And when that day comes, you will cry out. Because the king you choose for yourselves, not the king God has chosen, the king you choose for yourselves, but on that day, the Lord won't answer you. When we put all of this together, we can see that there's this idea that the king is serving, rather than serving the people and their interests, this king will force his interests upon them and force them To serve him and his interests. So we see, we put all of this together in the Old Testament, we can see these kind of basic ideas. That Israel rejects God's rule in favor of a human king. Second, Israel initially installs the king that they choose. They choose Saul because Saul absolutely looks the part. He's rich and handsome. Sound familiar? The text even says, like, he is the handsomest, tallest, most popular person. In the land, number three, Israel's kings then, throughout their history, with several, a few exceptions, rule by military, political, and economic power. They take and they take and they take to accumulate these three things, and Israel's kings take and enslave others in order to serve themselves. This is the story of Israel's kings. This is what they do. They fail miserably. And so the question that we raised at the beginning of this series is, what do you do? Do you abandon the idea of a king, or do you ask God to come and do the job himself? This is exactly what the men begin to find. During the reign of King Herod, who probably, maybe more than any other king, epitomizes this sort of self-serving rule by taking the lives of infants in order to maintain his own control and his own power, God sends his only son Jesus into the world. God sends Jesus to be king. In the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, listen to some of the ways in which the gospel describes who Jesus is. It begins this is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, which is another way of saying that Jesus is the anointed one or the chosen one. He's the one who God slacks. He's the son of David, so he comes in Israel's royal line. He's named Jesus because Jesus means saves. He comes to save his people. He's called Emmanuel because it's actually God with us. God coming to do the job himself. He's called the shepherd of his people, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. So he reigns by giving rather than taking. He reigns by dying in order to save his people rather than killing in order to save his own rule. He walks and he rides on a donkey rather than on a horse. He refuses over and over again to use violence. In fact, he endures violence and speaks about peace and forgiveness. He remains single rather than taking any wives. He doesn't play the political games of the day. He doesn't align himself with those in power in order to gain more of it. Instead, he rebukes the elite and aligns himself with the poor. He himself is born in an animal stall to poor parents. And he embraces a sacrificial lifestyle, a life of simplicity and generosity. When he put all of this together, we can say this about Jesus, that Jesus is the king God has chosen to rule on his behalf, that Jesus rules by submitting to the way of love, that Jesus gives his life to serve others and to set them free. And this is what it means for Jesus to be king, to come and to fulfill this role and expectation. And of course, the question that then lingers for all of us in this season and all times of the year is how is it that we will respond to this king? How will we respond to this one? See, throughout all of the Christmas stories, if you look at the stories in Matthew or in Luke, we begin to see contrasting responses to how people respond to this newborn king. In the gospel reading that we read today, we find the contrasting responses of Herod and the Magi, Herod and the wise men. See, Herod himself, when he hears the pronouncement of the newborn king, sees Jesus as a threat to his control. This is his perception, that Jesus poses a significant threat to his ability to maintain his life and his rule and his reign and his way as he wants it. And so his immediate response is to take the power that he has and begin to leverage it toward violence and begin to try to exterminate all of the babies born around that time to extinguish any threat to his rule. and For many of us, we wouldn't necessarily go to that same place in extreme as Herod does. Yet, what we see in Herod is sometimes what we find in the darkest places of our hearts, where Jesus represents for us a threat to our belief systems, to our way of life, to our comfort, to our control to having things the way that we want them to be, to our own idea of our individual ruling of our lives, of being the ones who get to determine what's right and wrong and good and evil, the ones who get to set our own agenda and do things our own way and secure for ourselves all the things that we want the way that we want to secure them. And we find this king who comes and lives in a different way and calls us to embrace that way we find a threat to our own self-rule. And we have to ask ourselves the question, will we trust Jesus, this king, enough to relinquish the control of our lives, every aspect of them, and to say, I choose to allow you to come and reign in every place, in every corner, in every sphere, in every relationship, in every decision, and every sort of financial and work-related aspect of my life, I entrust and turn it all over to you. The second sort of aspect that we have there is the Magi, and many of us kind of find ourselves in their place. The Magi are stargazers from the East. Those who are searching and searching and searching for a sign of something different, a sign of something new, a sign of some hope, a sign for things to be put differently in the world. And they see this sign and they take off over thousands of miles of desert to come and find the newborn King of the Jews. Jesus represents for them a hope. Jesus represents for them a ruler who comes to rule in a different kind of way, it comes as a welcomed relief, someone they're willing to search all of their lives for to then come and worship. And for many of us, when we hear about the Jesus, Jesus really is good news to us, that we find in Jesus a king who can actually deliver on all of the things that we need a king that can actually meet us in all of our broken places, who gives himself for us rather than taking for us, who gives us life when we're afraid of death, who gives us hope when we're in the midst of despair, who brings us peace when all we find inside of us and around us is deep, deep turmoil and pain. That we find God, a king, who can actually bring us joy, in the midst of suffering. And we come to him as the Magi do, to pledge our allegiance, to give everything that we have, and to worship him. We respond to the gospel with a great yes and amen. Wherever you find yourself this morning, I want you to know that Jesus stands before you with open arms. Jesus stands before you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And if you find him to be a threat, he looks at you and says, look at me and see how I've chosen to rule. I have given my life for you. I give myself away for you. I love you. I want what's best for you. Come and entrust yourself to me, every part of you. And for those of you who have already experienced the sweetness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, he stands before us and reminds us of all that, all those things are true. And he says, You can still come to me in worship and find the life and the hope and the joy and the peace and the answers that you so desperately desire and need. Because I'm here as the shepherd who gives his life away for you. And so we're going to have a chance in a moment to come to this table as a chance for us to acknowledge that He is King and a chance for us to worship Him in His reign and His rule in the world. The table has often been called by the church sacrament. It comes from a Latin word sacramentum, which comes from within the Roman Empire in which people would take a sacramentum, a pledge, an oath of allegiance to a ruler, to a king, And so we come to the table when we receive the gift of Jesus' life, the body and blood of Christ, we come to take a pledge to say, yes, I accept your rule in my life, and I worship you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let us pray. Gracious Father.